And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful and very appreciated community partners all the way across the country. We have a couple of fun interviews for you today and a whole bunch of news. Uh, I'm sitting in studio this week uh, with my co-host, Stephen Hostetter. How you doing? Kevin Farmer is still on vacation, but now he's also technically, temporarily, potentially not a co-host. Mm. Drums. Why is that again? Did we did we kick him off? Did he say something wrong? Yes. I'm just going to say yes, we did. You were supposed to trick. You know what I wanted <laughs> you to say there, Seth. No, he's running for the Green Party. Yes. So we are a nonpartisan, uh, uh, apolitical here show. So he may or may not be joining us uh, a little bit over the next little while. But as one of our co-hosts is currently running for a party, he is officially a guest mm. uh, from now on and not a co-host until at least uh, he wins. And then after he uh, serves a term for a while, then maybe we can have him back on. Mm. Uh, with uh, In the middle of the show today, we're going to be talking um, to Stephen Gray and Chris Phillips from Greening Homes. Um, we talked to them a little while ago, and I put a video together so you can watch the video online as well. Um, and there's some pictures and stuff with that. Uh, we're going to play today, and it's a little bit different than a lot of the things we usually do because a lot of the times uh, on this program we talk about sort of science and policy, and we talk about things from sort of 10,000 feet, and it's all very sort of atmospheric a lot of the time, uh, or providing analysis of news of the day. Uh, this was probably the, one of the most practical interviews we've done in quite some time because these are essentially just two builders who are telling us uh, all about things that they can do for people's homes that are, as long as you wait long enough, free. And we'll save you money. So these are all very practical tips for your home. A lot of them are obviously services they offer. So uh, if you're interested in something, they say you can go and talk to them. But uh, we basically stick to just sort of what some of the cool developments in uh, retrofits and the types of things that can be done for home that are both environmental and will save you money. So that's very uh, interesting. And that will be coming up after the break. However, before we get to that, I'm sitting live in studio with Sonia Faruqi, who is the author of Project Animal Farm. And welcome to the program, Sonia. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you, is, I will, I'll do in just a, a minute, it's the, sort of the most obvious question, the one I'm sure, I'm sure you're anticipating, it's about the title. Uh, but before we get there, uh, your story is uh, interesting in the sense of that uh, you tell, uh, in the, you have a, a video on your website and some information about yourself, and your background is not what I think a lot of people would expect as far as coming to this issue. You haven't been, uh, I, I don't think you would describe yourself as any sort of lifetime activist. You came from working on Wall Street, and, uh, and it was an experience during a vacation that you had that sort of changed your path. So if you would please start by just telling us a little bit about that story. I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and I got an economics major because I wanted to work on Wall Street. And I worked on Wall Street for a couple of years, but it was the worst time to join. It was the economic recession, and I lost my job like hundreds of thousands of people in New York. And it became an opportunity for me. I wanted a rural vacation. I've always been urban, and I wanted a different setting. I found myself at an organic dairy farm in Ontario where nothing was as it had seemed. And so th this uh, in inspired a whole bunch of work, and you've now put together uh, a book, and I was uh, looking through on your website, and you have uh, quite a number, quite a long list of very, very complimentary things being saying about your book. Uh, do you want to uh, maybe to get a little bit more detail into some of the sort of feedback you've been getting about this information that you've put out? Sure. So Project Animal Farm became an international expedition to find solutions. I became concerned by the animal welfare, human health, and environmental issues I was witnessing, and I decided I need to fix this. I need to find ideas to create a better and more sustainable food system. 
So my journey took me to Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Mexico, Belize, and the United States. And I'm pleased to say the book has had a very good reception so far. Um, all the reviews are positive, and the book has received endorsements from lots of people. Um, Peter Singer, Francis Morlepay, Temple Grandin, and Michael Pollan gave it a tweet this week as well. So it's all been very exciting. Uh, so the, the question I was just teasing there for a minute, and I'm, I'm sure you've already had this probably before because I know you've already done a number of interviews, was uh, what, if any, is the intentional connection to the famous book? And 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 uh, and I just <laughs> I'm assuming maybe that was uh, intentional, was it? And and what was the angle there? Animal Farm was a book by George Orwell. I like the book. I like George Orwell. I like 1984 as well. But the title doesn't relate specifically to that book. To me, this was a project of understanding, explaining, and solving the issues of animal farms. So Project Animal Farms seemed like the most simple and honest name to have. So with regards to um, the contents that's in there, as, you, as we were just talking about with your background, this was not something you started out as. This is something you sort of evolved into. So what I'm curious from that point of view is... Um, you know, as uh, people like Stefan and I, who sort of have been immersed in this type of information uh, for most of our adult lives, what was there? Was there a period during your work in Wall Street, or potentially before that in school, or potentially even before that, where you were being sort of exposed tangentially to some of this information? Maybe you heard, you know, people on Facebook or something like that, and then sort of later, when you dug into it yourself, you went, "Oh, was there was was there awareness before you had this change yes, in your life?" Yes, there about was this? awareness. I started thinking about these topics when I was a student at Dartmouth College, and they were sort of brewing in my mind, but I hadn't taken any action or thought too deeply about these issues until I found myself on farms, and I could see and smell and feel and really understand these issues. Mm. Do you think that's a that's something that is maybe preventing a lot of people from having the same sort of eye-opening experience, is that this is just something that's completely out of sight for them? Absolutely. There's a huge disconnect today between consumers and what they're eating. Um, we have no idea of how the animals have been treated, of what they're being fed, of how many there are of the living conditions. And so we are in a state of darkness, and that is intentional on the part of the agriculture industry. I've been to factory farms, and then I've been to their websites, and the two have nothing in common. The photos are fake. The descriptions are fake. So there's often a lot of misinformation or a lack of information, which is really preventing us from getting much more involved. Mm. The idea of putting a, a sort of a shiny face on a multinational, you know, industry like that is something is certainly not limited to the animal industry. I mean, basically every giant uh, multinational corporation that's doing something that has sort of a, a dark side, it's it's obviously in their interest, and we expect them to do things like trying to minimize that or 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 hide it because, you know, it's like well, people want this product; they don't necessarily need to know where it comes from. Was there anything particular about this, though, that really, when you sort of found out what was actually happening, that really just sort of took you aback? Food is very different from most products in that it's very personal. We ingest food into our bodies. It becomes a part of us. It's a representation of our values. There's a saying which is common today, we are what we eat, which is literally true and figuratively true as well. So... 
this is an issue that is, I think, extremely important, which is not to underplay other issues, but it's um, our most direct relationship to animals. It's our most direct relationship to the planet itself. Hmm. And so to me, Project Animal Farm brought that home, and I think it helps bring it home for readers because they're with me on my journey. Hmm. And there's another side to that too, which is uh, is for you know the the companies have an incentive to sort of make themselves look as good as possible and put as good a face on it. But we've we've spoken about this before with other guests we've had on this topic, and and uh, I want to get your sort of uh, opinion on this about to what degree and how much of the problem is it that there seems to be a fairly willing audience to these sort of sham. Oh, everything's clean and nice, and everybody's happy, and there's no bad stuff. Is that the public seems very willing to accept that message? Uh, generally, do you? How much of the problem do you think is is that people just don't want to know where the food comes from? I think part of the problem is that people don't want to know, but I think there are other people who do want to know, and they're not sure of how to start. They do go to websites, but then they see misinformation. They do look at the labels when they're buying products, but the labels may or may not mean much. Mm. So for instance, free range, which is a wonderful concept, is actually not legally defined in the US and Canada. So free range is supposed to mean animals have outdoor access, but how much outdoor access, the quality of outdoor access, the age from which they have outdoor access, those are not defined. And so some free range farms are not free range at all. Um, But the consumers who are buying the free range are really trying to do the right thing. So I think it's both ignorance is bliss to some people, but to others it's very concerning and it makes them queasy. What were some of the other things that sort of jumped out at you as you were digging deeper into this to, to write the book about something that maybe uh, really surprised you or jumped out at you as, as as something that really sort of took you back? A lot jumped out at me. <laughs> and let's see, where to start? So in Project Animal Farm, I live with farmers. I mm. live with contract growers. I live in their homes. I really get to know them and I become a part of their communities. And I liked them. From a distance, we tend to portray things as black or white or good or evil. And the people in these industries are portrayed as such as well. I found that to be a harmful view, and I found it to be erroneous. When you're close up, things really are gray, and it comes down to sorting the gray and understanding it and explaining it. So I was surprised at my strong connection with the people I met, even though I disagreed with their farm practices, a lot of them were cogs trapped in this huge industrial system, and they themselves did not like it. That was very illuminating to me. Mm. Do you get into uh, that that role much in your book uh, about the sort of connection, about the trap that's almost been set by some of these bigger companies buying up small farmers and and the sort of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, accumulation of resources under these, you know, what used to be a bunch of small farmers are now sort of almost, uh, the businesses, I don't mean this literally, just to be clear, but the the businesses are almost slaves to their, their sort of corporate masters in that sense. Absolutely. So once someone buys a factory farm, they're financially in it and they're stuck. So until they've paid off their debts for these buildings that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, they are a slave to the company. They cannot make even small decisions. So for instance, let's say it's a hot day like today and the chickens are hot and you want to open the window. You cannot do that. You're not allowed to do that. So they are very, very restricted 
And one of the anecdotes in Project Animal Farm that surprised me is from a pastoral farmer I met. He moved to Canada from England, and he started this beautiful pastoral farm. And soon after he did, one of the largest Canadian food corporations came to him and said, we're going to pay you a quarter of a million dollars a year to stop farming and to stop saying that factory farms are bad. So they do have a lot of money. They do want to buy out people. They want to buy out people who are doing good things. And often they are successful at it. So it's a David versus Goliath sort of situation. And it's a situation where the power is very much with the corporations and very little with consumers or with farmers. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to, to go over to Stefan for one second, because when we uh, when you guys uh, put out uh, a while ago, before you and I started <laughs> working together, this reminds me of the, the animated video. You made a video yeah. about factory farming. Uh, and I was just wondering if, if you could sort of quickly summarize that funny interaction you had with a factory farmer who actually contacted yeah. you in the comments and was like complaining about the accuracy of your information. Do you want to just briefly tell that story? Yeah. yeah so we, well, we, we put out a, a, uh, a video that was basically like, Here's things about factory farming. I, I wrote it as such to try to be as 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 nice to factory farmers as possible. Mm. Uh, I, I, I hedged every bet. It was you know the the, the end was still we need to under, we need to look at this deeper and we need to probably stop this practice. But I hedged every bet I could. I gave them every benefit of the doubt in the art. So I, I felt like I was trying to be as as nice as possible. Perhaps more than necessary. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, like you know, if I was going to say exactly what I thought, it'd be a much different video. But it was, <laughs> the point was to sort of provide the sort of like, look, if we, even if we hedge every single bet, even if we give them every single piece of bet of the doubt, these are still the underlying issues of factory farming. Uh, but yeah, then we got content. We had well, actually, what they did, they, they didn't co- they, they commented, but they also shared it on their on their own Google page. Mm. Uh, so they're, uh, they're, they shared it as like, a, look what these people, crazy people saying what factory farming is like. Um, and it was this really funny interaction. I, we had this back and forth. He was, and every time he had like, you, you said all these things. And I was like, well, this is why I said these five things. And then by the end of it, he was like, well, I still don't like it. <laughs> but he had sort of, we had sort of, I sort of talked him off the, the off the ledge a little bit. Um, but it was, in, yeah, it was interesting because it, it was, it was the media. It's like, how dare you call us a factory farm? We only have hundred thousand people. I'm like, I'm just using the definition of that. You know, like, yeah. I'm not. I'm like, I'm I, like, I, I haven't been to your specific farm, but these are the issues generally. Yeah. What else can I say? But I think to to bring it back to Sonia, I think, and the reason I wanted to go yeah. to Stefan for that little story was it was just sort of example of that. Like a lot of the time, the people who are the farmers sort of. You know, they're you think, okay, well, he's the farmer, so he's the expert, or she's the farmer, so she's the expert. Um, but a lot of the time, if you're in the system, you can't really see the cogs that are spinning around you. And, I, and if I had to guess what that interaction resulted in, it was that this guy sort of reacted, hey, you're attacking my industry, I'm going to defend myself. Uh, and then, I mean, again, we're guessing here, but it kind of seemed like he went like, oh, shoot, you're kind of right about a bunch of this stuff. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Well, I think it really also was that the sort of it's, you know, here's a here's an er, city city kid just making this video that like he does what does he know about my industry, right? My mm. I have I've lived with I've lived on the farm my entire life. I've done all these sort of things. What does this person know that like obviously they don't have the they do not know what what I know. Mm. Uh, in this or and um, and you don't, and I don't. I don't know a lot of. It's, it's like I do not know a lot of like the nitty gritty or anything that they're doing. So like when I kept sort of taking a step back, I think he sort of thought I would keep going further and further. But like, every time I took a step back, and was like, "This is just the, here's the stats that I found. This is what I'm going based on. This is what I mean." And then, but like that's all I got. It it sort of it it put him off kilter. He didn't really know exactly what to do mm-hmm. with it. 
He was anticipating a, uh, a fight and didn't realize that you're so sweet, Stephanie. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, Sonia, uh, so coming back from that sort of uh, idea, where uh, you talk about the, in the book, it's sort of you're, you're bringing people in a journey li- along with you. Um, so uh, if you can, without sort of spoiling the end of the book, where do, where do you sort of approximately end up at the end of this? Are you uh, hopeful? Um, is there things that you think people can do to be involved in this as far as like consuming with their, their choices? Or is this, is this really just something we need to sort of agitate for at a political level? Where do, where do you end up with your conclusion? about this? I think there's a lot of hope. I end up in a positive place. And the reason is that the systems we have today don't need to stay as they are. They're a result of a short-term mindset and behavior. So everyone can take action. Project Animal Farm has solutions for producers and consumers both. Since I imagine most of our audience is um, consumers, they're there's a lot we can do. We can eat less meat. That's an important part of it. I was looking up numbers in Canada, and today the meat consumption, meat, fish, and eggs, is about 250 pounds a year. If you add in dairy, that becomes about 300 pounds a year per person, which is six pounds a week. It's almost a pound a day. It's unhealthy, and it's inhumane and unnecessary and very unsustainable. So we can reduce our servings. We can eat much less meat than we do today. And when we are eating meat, we can buy better. We need to think about it. We need to do the research. We can go to farmers markets and health food stores. And um, the burden of research is on the consumers, but it's easy to manage. It's something that is helpful for consumers themselves to modify their eating habits. Mm-hmm. And of course, remember, those are our averages. So uh, there's a quite a healthy vegetarian and vegan uh, community in, in Canada. Uh, yes. So it's not a huge proportion, but that does mean that by the numbers, some people are eating more than a pound a day, which just... That's very true. Yeah. Uh, wow. Anyway, so uh, so we're going to break for our music break now. Sonia is going to stick around and uh, I believe and, and help us uh, talk chat at the end of the show a little bit. Uh, if you want to check out the book, it's Project Animal Farm. We will have links on the website and as well uh, it's Sonia Faruqi. So uh, check that out. The post will be on greenmajority.ca. Without further ado, we're going to go to Edward. What are we going to listen to for our first break, buddy? Oh, there we go. There we go. Now we can hear it. <laughs> uh, we got one of my favorite bands, uh, Bare Naked Ladies, Be My Yoko Ono. And if there's someone you can live without, then you do so. And if there's someone you can just shove out, then do so. You can be my Yoko Ono You can follow me wherever I go Be my, be my, be my, be my Yoko Ono oh, Isn't it beautiful to see two people so much in love Bare naked eyes, two virgins hand in hand and hand in hand in glove Now that I'm far away, it doesn't seem to me to be such a pain To have you hanging off my ankle like some kind of ball and chain You can be my Yoko Ono You can follow me wherever I go Be my, be my, be my, be my Yoko Ono 
when I say this I may be stepping on pins and needles But I don't like all these people slagging her for breaking up the needles Don't blame it on Yoki Even if I was John and you were Yoko I would gladly give up music genius Just to have you as my very own personal Venus All right, and we're back. Bare Naked Ladies. Our American audience must be scratching their heads right now, but those are guys. Bare Naked Ladies. Google them. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to go to our second interview here. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, and we are now going to go to an interview that I filmed actually a couple of weeks ago. Very, very interesting and full of a lot more practical information per minute than usual because uh, we're speaking to Stephen Gray and Chris Phillips from Greening Homes, and they're going to talk to us all about some practical things that they do in their practice of things that are both environmentally friendly and can easily save you money. There are a range of some of them have longer payback periods than others, uh, but these are all very practical money-saving tips for your house. So we're uh, uh, we're going to do that. So what the uh, we, I have this broken into sections. The first uh, bit here is just Stephen and uh, uh, Chris in, uh, introducing themselves. So we'll take it away with the first clip. Hi, I'm Stephen Gray with uh, a construction manager with Greeny Homes. I uh, initially trained as a structural engineer, and then I was working uh, for a large engineering firm. And then about uh, three years ago, I, I renovated my house. I rebuilt my house uh, using structural insulated panels. And this got me really excited about building. And so I decided to, uh, to stay in that industry and, and uh, keep on building uh, energy-efficient, uh, sustainable homes. And uh, my name is Chris Phillips. I'm the owner of Greening Homes. I started the company in 2007 with the specific mandate to minimize our environmental impact as much as possible in any renovations work that we do. So. Um, you know, we look at our approaches across uh, is a holistic approach to renovating uh, responsibly or green, um, and that uh, that includes everything from better waste management practices to uh, responsible material selection, uh, indoor air quality impacts, uh, you know, energy efficiency, and even how we get to and from uh, our sites and what we call smart transportation. Um, we do all kinds of renovation work, um, but uh, we are particularly good at, uh, at doing energy retrofits and understanding the, the building science, the holistic approach to, to renovating well. So the first question I asked them was, uh, you know, the, the title we of their company at, is Greening... Uh, the title of their company is Greening Homes, and uh, you know we're 2015 now. Everybody, every company has the word green in their in in the title of something. It's very hip to say you're green. So I asked them what exactly about their business is green. Well, we look at um, building green, if you will, um, as a holistic approach. It's not just about energy. It's about uh, you know minimizing our impacts across the board, and the way that we do that is by uh, uh, following what we call our five pillar approach uh, to renovating responsibly. And so that includes um, everything from waste management practice to uh, responsible choice of materials, indoor air quality, um, energy efficiency, and even how we get to and from our sites. And so uh, over the last six months, uh, it's been 
it's been kind of exciting because we say we do these things, but uh, we've had, I guess, third parties uh, recognize us for our efforts across uh, three of those pillars. So we uh, won uh, two awards, uh, one of which was a National Green Building Award uh, just a couple of weeks ago for a project at Beechwood, a deep energy retrofit. Uh, and last, uh, uh, just yesterday, we won an award for our commuting, healthy commuting practice. So we try to minimize the use of our of trucks as much as possible, so it's not unusual for you know most of the crew, if not all of the crew, to come uh, to site by bicycle even. Um, and uh, and in the fall, we won a, an award for uh, for our waste management practices. So when someone tells you that you're you're achieving what you say you're achieving, that's that that's not you. It's a good thing. Um, it, it's a real success for us to have that uh, happen. On our jobs, there are certain things that we like to do. Um, the the low cost or no cost. Um, initiatives uh, to help make the projects more sustainable and so those would be uh, things like um, trying to recycle or salvage as much as our, of our construction waste as possible so all our waste uh, we get sorted at, at an off-site facility and it either gets recycled um, or uh, reused in some other way diverted from landfill and then we get a, a material report at the end of the project which we can present to the clients to let them know how much uh, waste was diverted um, and, and a as Chris mentioned, we try to, to um, use non-fossil uh, fuel methods of transportation to get to and from sites, so most of our crew will be cycling or, or taking the TTC to sites. In, in terms of material selections, uh, um, most of our framing lumber we use is FSC certified, and then we also use as a standard high recycled content uh, drywall, and uh, also as a standard low or no uh, VOC uh, finishes for healthier indoor air quality. And things like uh, if we're pouring concrete, we use uh, concrete that high, has high SEM contents, so supplementary cementitious materials. So um, what we're doing is uh, replacing up to 40% of the typical Portland cement um, uh, content with, uh, with actually slag, which is an industrial byproduct um, uh, from the steel industry. And so you're using, uh, you're using industrial waste and you're minimizing the, uh, the emissions that are caused by Portland cement. Um, uh, for uh, formation, so it's a, it's it's an absolutely it's no added cost. Yet it's a it's a it's one of the kind of we call it the low hanging fruit options. They're just an environmentally responsible um, alternative that we can we can institute in all of our projects. And and so, not all the time do we have clients that are that are looking for the deep energy retrofit or looking for a deep green project. But as a baseline standard, we can do quite a bit um, without having really Im any impact on cost. So all of our clients are getting something a little bit unique, a little bit, uh, a little bit above um, what the standard practice would be. A some, in some cases, a lot uh, above the standard practice in the industry. So next I asked them, uh, you know, we've uh, a lot of, pretty much all, most of anyway, of uh, the type of eco upgrades generally have to do with efficiency and stuff like that. So almost all of them save you money. But I asked them what, what some of the most low-hanging fruit was, was something that almost anybody could do that's both going to be better for the environment and save them some money. Well, one thing we always like to encourage our uh, clients to do is, is to insulate and, and air seal the home as much as possible. Uh, this will reduce their heating costs in the long run, but it's also one of the uh, most cost-effective ways of, of, of reducing your maintenance costs. And so just uh, at the minimum, doing uh, cold levels of insulation and, and installing better-performing windows and just making sure the connection between those two elements uh, is airtight so you're not losing uh, heated air through through cracks and, and other um, deficiencies in the building envelope 
we can sort of take it a, a step further by, by doing um, a blower door test which uh, sucks the air out of your home and then uh, with a thermal imaging camera we can see where all these air leakage points uh, might be and we can seal them up um, you know, before, before the project is finished. Yeah, so certainly, I mean, best practice is, is ensuring that you're not just air sealing or, or adding insulation. It's making sure that, you know, what you're doing is, is effective. And so having, having those instruments um, available is quite key. Um, and also when you're insulating, being aware of the, uh, the type of, um, of, of construction of the home. So um, what's often uh, best practice, or not best practice, but what's often done these days in terms of insulating and retrofit applications is simply to, to spray foam everywhere. Um, and, and we have, as a company, some, some concerns about, about that. Uh, I mean, there, there are <clears throat> the environmental impacts as a whole of, of, of spray foam. Um, potential environmental impacts if the mix doesn't quite work out, um, but also um, uh, impacts in terms of it, uh, traceability if you have uh, any water coming into the uh, uh, into that area and trying to find where that source is, and impacts in terms of how the uh, the, the walls function. So uh, um, just spray foaming um, onto a masonry wall that gets a lot of uh, sun-driven moisture can be a real real concern. Um, so. Um, you know, you can have mortar uh, mortar issues, and the, the wall that can be could have been there for over 100 years can start to disintegrate very quickly if you're not careful about how uh, you're insulating. So, as a, as a company, one of the things that we specialize in is having understanding of um, of building science and, and figuring out the best application, um, you know, best insulating procedures for different uh, um, wall systems. And spray foam certainly has its use, but it's not uh, something that we recommend uh, to be used uh, in, in all applications. In fact, we, as a company, are working to towards even having a sign-off form to say, here are some of the concerns that we have about this product. Um, you know, people, clients need to be aware that you get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of our value per inch. Um, but that our value, um, that insulation value, decreases over time, and it's uh, marketed as an air sealer, uh, but it also is, uh, uh, tends not to be very pliable. So over time, it shrinks as well. So the air sealing qualities aren't uh, as uh, most people expect it to be. So anyway, making informing clients is very important, and knowing what you're doing uh, to, to your older home specifically uh, by adding new materials, it's uh, really key um, to being effective. So I asked them next what I would assume most people's logical question would be, would be to put on their skeptical hat and say, now, wait a minute. If these decisions were so obvious, if they were so universally things that will essentially pay back and then you make money off them, why aren't they the default? So I asked them, why is green building? Why are some of these techniques that they're employing to retrofit people's homes not already there? I do think there's a lot of inertia in the uh, residential building industry and uh, sort of conventional construction and, and the way, way it's been done for, for years um, sort of keeps perpetuating itself. And obviously those aren't um, looking towards the future, the houses that we build now. You know, if we want them to be around for 100 years and performing for 100 years, we are going to have to change the way we, uh, we build them. And so that's going to take, uh, you know, education both of, of builders and of, uh, of homeowners as well as uh, you know, uh, regulatory components. So the, the building code is, is mandating that uh, uh, they have stricter uh, energy performance requirements now. And so all those things have to come together to, to make change in the building industry. Even in terms of, um, even at the uh, architectural level, I think, um, the devil's in the details. High performance is in, is, is in understanding the connections and um, 
often we find ourselves coming in after the design process has already been uh, in, in place and then th there's often kind of a reverse engineering to try to get the, the project to, to uh, details that, that make sense in from, a, you know, from an energy efficiency point of view. Um, I think uh, just the process, uh, it, having more of a collaborative process with the builder and the architect uh, and the homeowner at the very beginning um, stages helps to kind of move move things forward uh, a bit in terms of better building practice. So uh, Stephen and Chris from Green uh, Greening Homes uh, won a few awards actually for a project they did that was a, a retrofit. Um, uh, I can't remember if they explain it too much because I actually I had to actually cut this interview quite. It was a very uh, very long interview that was very very good. Just like Gordon Edwards last week, I I had to cut out all sorts of good material unfortunately just because we had to get it down to a certain amount of time. Um, but so they're talking about a project that uh, exceeded passive house standard, uh, and passive house basically means uh, I, I they'll uh, they'll have to do the the detailed version. Uh, but it's something along the lines of basically it, it gives out as it. it uh, re recovers as much energy as it uses, so it's something we're talking about, sort of like green building standards. Uh, and they they won awards because they did a retrofit that achieved better than the standard that exists for new builds. Um, so they were uh, quite proud of that, I think, quite justifiably. So I just asked them to tell us a little bit about that project. So the um, the, the project at Beechwood, which was a uh, um, post World War II bungalow, uh, was a masonry structure, uninsulated. Um, you know, it's a one story home, and the. Uh, uh, clients had been there for, uh, they lived there for, I guess, 12 or 13 years, and uh, they wanted to expand. They have a family of four. Um, client uh, is an engineer, and uh, he wanted something that was extremely high-performing, and, uh, and he came to us to, to help him with that project. And so... Uh, so this project has a very unique mechanical system. Uh, because the heating requirements are so low, uh, most of the heating, uh, the source energy for the heating is, is via this shallow geothermal loop. And so this is uh, not your typical geothermal uh, borehole where you're, you're going down 400 feet into the ground. This is just uh, you know, tubing laid in the uh, subsoil beneath the basement slab uh, that's getting heat from the ground. And then the heat pumps up, upgrading that into a, a thermal storage tank, which is then being circulated uh, throughout the house, either uh, in the basement slab or, uh, and there's another unique feature, uh, through radiant ceilings on the first and second floor. And these radiant ceilings uh, in the summer uh, will also cool the house. Well, I guess what, what's, what's really important um, to note is that this project was extremely energy efficient, but also every aspect of the build was was unique and carefully considered from an environmental perspective so um, you know when it, in terms of brass fittings they're um, California standard uh, lead free uh, all of the uh, wet applied products were uh, low or zero VOC um, the concrete that was poured had uh, high um, supplementary cementitious uh, uh, contents so reducing uh, uh, carbon impact um, carbon emissions uh, from, from high recycled locally manufactured drywall to FSC certified lumber, uh, water sense certified low flow uh, fixtures, um, cool metal roof. Drain water heat Drain recovery. Water heat we just knew that as a matter of course, I didn't even think about that. It's, a, <laughs> it's also plumbed for, um, for non potable water uh, to, to the toilets. Water, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so, anyway. Part of the, the, the planning, and if, if you can't do everything in, you know, at one time, you can, you can plan for it and phase, uh, phase those projects for the future. So there, there, is, a, there is a provision for a, a rainwater cistern, and there's a non-potable uh, manifold in, on the plumbing supplies that will feed toilets and laundry and outdoor hose bibs with rainwater when, when that gets implemented. It's... 
It's, it's, it's a cool project. It's, that's how, how to describe it. And, and, and actually, one thing that we, we, we didn't mention is that over the last winter, which was one of the most extreme winters on record, uh, the, the heating system, it, was, it relied on the geothermal loop uh, alone and... and, and uh, yeah, well, sorry. To, 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 to be accurate, that, yeah. Accurate. Uh, last winter, we had the coldest February on record, and the shallow geothermal loop alone was able to supply all the heating energy for the house. So the very last thing I asked them, well, the very last thing I asked them that we're going to play on the radio, I'll, I'll probably be putting out the full version of this uh, interview uh, later for those that are interested in some of the more details that I had to snip out for time. Uh, but the last thing that we asked them we were going to play on the air today was that I asked them about future-proofing. So a lot of these things are sort of bringing things up to code, improving uh, the efficiency of the house. A lot of it has to do with improving efficiency of an existing building. Uh, I asked them what role uh, the concept of future-proofing built into this as far as uh, not just sort of plugging holes and, and gaps, but as far as like allowing for changes in our system and the types of ways that, that we generate electricity and use our homes and how some of that played into uh, some of the advice that they gave homeowners. I mean, a community generation of uh, power generation, it makes, uh, um, makes a lot of sense in, in, in uh, a lot of new developments. I don't... Uh, it, it's a difficult thing to kind of integrate into... Uh, um, you know, into existing kind of uh, homes or, or neighborhoods in, in the uh, in the city that we you know downtown core, which is where we work. Um, but there's a lot of exciting developments, like a communal um, a community heating um, um, district uh, heating is 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 the way of the future. The thing that we do need to focus on, even though it's not exciting in terms of uh, sort of uh, future proofing, or uh, well, this seems to be a. a um not not obsession, but but you know, um, in our society, we, we you know we, we want uh, sort of high tech and or fancy gadgets. So you know, solar panels, electric cars, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, your your garbage is is composting and turning to methane, and you're powering your lights with it or something. But uh, uh, in my opinion, the the things that we really need to be investing in because they're lower cost and because once you install them. They're saving energy for as long as they're on your house. So, and, and that is the basics. It's insulation. It's, it's good windows. It's air sealing. Because those things, they, don't need any, you know, they, they need little maintenance. Well, insulation doesn't need any maintenance. Uh, so as long as you take the opportunity when you're doing a renovation to install those features, they're going to pay back uh, you know, for as long as they're, they're in your house. And so those are, and those are the opportunities that are being passed up all the time in, in renovations that, you know, in favor of uh, stainless steel appliances or granite countertops or any number of things. And, and really, that's, that's what we can focus our energy on. It, it's a, it ends up being a very small percentage of a renovation project. But in terms of payback and, and what uh, an environmental benefit in terms of uh, energy reduction, you know, those are the things that we can all invest in um, you know, now. And, uh, and they'll, they'll be there for 100 years. And, and, and I wanted to say that, uh, I mean, we, we often, we're talking about energy retrofits and, and applications that... Um, uh, and we're talking about payback, and, uh, and, and these things are, are important. And, and obviously, if you're adding additional air sealing, you're adding insulation, there, there's a cost to that up front that, that again, hopefully you see a return on. Um, what I, I think is important to, to kind of get across is that w when you're looking at green, it's not just about energy. It, there's a kind of a holistic um, um, approach to that. A lot of our clients um, have uh, chemical sensitivities. They've got concerns about indoor air quality, uh, for example. There are 
lots of different things that you can do that don't add to the cost that are environmentally preferable. And, and uh, you know, we do we do get a lot of uh, comments about, oh, green, that must be expensive. It's it's not um, not necessarily the case. There's a lot that you can do um, that that are that is better for the environment and and uh, um, that just makes smart the smart choices. When you're talking about energy efficiency, yes, there's a, there's an initial uh, an added cost, but you do tend to see that um, see that return on the investment. Um, but not all aspects are going to add uh, cost to a project. And at Greening Homes, we do those low or no cost initiatives as a matter, as a matter of course. <laughs> Oh, those guys were fun. I mean, so, uh, again, that was uh, Stephen Gray and Chris Phillips from Greening Homes. If you want to learn more about uh, uh, their business and some of the things that they offer, you can uh, check the website. We have links up there as well. Also, it's not up now. Uh, well, the, the, the radio edit version is up. The, if you want to listen to just this interview again, the video version of the interview, as you just heard it, uh, is up on the website now. And at some point in the future, I will probably find a way to release uh, the full version as well. Because as I said, we had to cut out a ton of really interesting information. Uh, so Greening Homes, uh, check the website for that greenmajority.ca but uh we're now back to edward we have our second and final music break here on the green majority what are we going to hear buddy hey uh we're going way back or at least way back for me i'm, I'm pretty <laughs> young uh this is alanis morissette you ought to know <laughs> you to know that i'm happy for you i wish nothing but the best for you both I know the version of me Is she perverted like me? Would she go down on you in a theater? Does she speak eloquently? And would she have your baby? I'm sure she'd make a really excellent mother Cause the love that you gave that we made Wasn't able to make it enough for you to be open wide Oh, yeah. 
welcome back. What a cut in. That was beautiful. Well done, sir. Uh, I need to start off with an apology, though, uh, to everyone who was offended by the fact that we called that way back. Uh, especially, specifically, uh, Kevin Farmer. We're very sorry, Kevin. Yes. Our technician was born in 85. So just don't, don't born in 95. 95? Oh, man. <laughs> So, so way back for him. So we'll just all accept that and move on. We don't need 17 angry emails about the fact that we called Lannis Morset way back. <laughs> that's, all I'm, that's all I'm saying. Um, but we're going to jump right into our news. Well, of course, welcome back to the Green Majority uh, on CIUT 89.5 and across our wonderful community syndicates. I've heard Darren say that enough times that I can do it. Ha-ha. Well done, sir. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to jump into our news section of this, of this thing. And I've, I've sort of took take the news that Darren so ex- expertly curated uh, and created a little story for all of you Ooh. Uh, to lead us through all of them. I hopefully get to, we might not get to all of them, but at least we can mention all of them so you can hear the whole little story. Mm. Uh, and it begins with the question of, uh, it's, th- it's all about the end of oil and what futures could look like. That's the, that's the story to this week. Mm. Um, and it starts with the fact that Cenevis uh, is once again reporting that they're in a cut about a couple hundred more jobs uh, from the, the, the tar sands out in Alberta uh, because, again, the price of oil is still too low to ma- for, to, for, honestly, for them to be making any money. That is actually like, that is, that is the case of it right now. But you know what's a really smart business decision, Stefan? Investing more? Yeah, when your sales are dropping, invest in more infrastructure. Yes. That's really always a good idea. <laughs> Uh, so yes, uh, so so with that as jumping off point, with let's, let's so with the idea of uh, that we're you know in 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 our wonderful fairy world that we live in right now, uh, we um, we are oil is ending and what are we going to do? Or we are we're we're going to find a way to get off oil uh, into the direct sense and so what we're going to do. Uh, and then, so the two of the other two other stories are interesting. The first one I'm going to throw to you, Darren, because you actually you, you've done a bit of extra research on this one. Mm. Uh, is the idea of taking recycled plastics, and of course, of course as we as we all have mentioned, uh, one of the biggest arguments for why we can't get off oil is like, well, oils in everything, mm. uh, and, and and they'll go through the you know the terrifying number of things that like that like you're wearing oil, you're eating oil, yeah. <laughs> like it's like it's it is terrifying when they go through it, and when they use it, at, often oil companies use it as an example of like why. Basically, it's like a "you need us." Yeah, sort it of seems situation. almost like a mafia intimidate. It's a mafia thing. Exactly. Like, well, what are you going to do without us? It would be terrible without our protection money if something was to happen to your business. <laughs> yeah, it's, you just need oil. What happens if you didn't have anything? What? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but um, so this is the first thing: is they t- actually taking plastics uh, and recycling it as turning it into oil. And you've done some research on that, right? So the lowdown essentially, and, I, and I'm going to do more information. This was just brought to my attention just yesterday, and it, it does need a little bit more digging into it. So if somebody's interested, I, I do recommend going to the link. We're going to post it on the show post uh but the link itself is incomplete so this uh, it was a private company that developed this technology uh and it is being uh done in partnership with a un program called our world um and essentially it shows a man taking a whole bunch of uh, uh plastic related materials there appeared to be some polystyrene there, there wasn't a lot of detail in the video but it appeared to be polystyrene and several types of plastic just like a recycling bin would look like or uh more accurately what you will see along the side of the road a lot of the time a lot of disposable food containers food bags the type of thing that people tend to throw on the on the street pushed it into this container apparently it uh puts under pressure and some other chemicals i think there's some uh, uh o3 or something like some uh, uh ozone that goes in there i forget the actual chemical that goes in there, but basically it raises it to a temperature and puts a substrate in it and reverse engineers it and it shows it coming out as uh, kerosene, gasoline, heavy crude, and all these different materials. Uh, 
my question, this, this video had been shared something like 800,000 times by the time I got to it. Uh, and I posted a comment, and somebody posted right below me saying, yeah, I was wondering that too, which is that the entire source of a lot of these materials is that, like, w what they do to make the plastic, they started making plastic out of it because you refine it and, y and it, it sort of settles into different things, the same way when you get, like, a layered shooter, right? They separate it and, it, and there's different consistencies, and those things get different used for different things. So fuel-grade oil is one, and then they had all these other byproducts that were left over, so this became, or not became, this was kerosene, which was then used in things like heating lamps, and there's all sorts of byproducts, and that's where these plastics tend to come from. Most of them tend to come from the byproducts. They're not, it's not the same grade of oil that you could use in a car, They're, and that's why they have it. They had this material, they wanted to use it for something, so they developed a product around it. So what I don't understand and wasn't clear, and I'm going to do, so I'm going to try and get back to you about this, but if fuel-grade oil was not in the materials when it was produced, how are you getting it out of it? Mm -hmm. uh, because they seem to be implying that was what's happening, and I'm pretty sure to call BS on that. <laughs> uh, but I am going to, so the UN page didn't get into details and they basically said, we've had a ton of responses. We can't answer any questions. Contact the company. So I'm going to do that. Uh -huh. I'm going to do that. I'm going to try and contact the company and we're trying to get an answer to this. Uh, could be exciting. I'm highly skeptical at the moment, but I will report back. Right. Uh, and of course, the other question, uh, which is the obvious one, you're doing something like that, is how much energy does it take to do that? Yes, of course. Is yes. this in any way energy reasonable? Um, yeah. it, it did seem like it was a small apparatus, uh, so whatever. So it, it, they had basically this machine plugged into a wall, mm -hmm. but that was to deal with what looked to be about maybe three or four quarts right. of material. Um, so the energy requirements to do this on a large scale, uh, unknown. Good question. Yeah. And I will ask them when I, if I find them. Excellent. Uh, so the second one, uh, again, another sort of sense of, it's another sort of futurist technology creating oil out of nothing mm. uh, is this one that's going around on uh, on sort of the clickbait science websites mm. uh, about a, how CO2 is being sucked out of the sky by massive fans and turned into energy. Yeah, here's another one where my brain went immediately these are fans, so you're powering the fans, so <laughs> what's the carbon offset? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't need, it just but by, yeah, my, hmm this is probably not as simple as it sounds, Bell definitely started ringing. Well, as soon as you read, the, 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 the two things I've been reading the article, uh, again, it'll be posted, uh, but mm -hmm. the number one thing is it's created by uh, a, a company out of Alberta, uh, which is like, I think, Carbon Capture, something like that. One of those companies, basically, it's being largely funded by, by, by oil groups as a, as a way to, like, we keep using oil as long as we have these other crazy technologies to suck oil out of the air. Yeah. And it should be noted as well that in Alberta, and Alberta alone, as far as I understand it, there was uh, a part of the uh, royalties that they got from the oil money mm. was actually earmarked for carbon capture and storage yeah. type technology. So these, these are companies that are benefiting from a designated subsidy almost mm. to, re to invest in cleaning technologies, um, um, almost like you wanted to promote alternatives. <laughs> um, anyway. Don't go that far. Um, uh, but the, so the other, the other line that really jumped out at me was uh, – it was a line that – you could put these fans in places where trees could just no longer grow. Mm. That was the reason that those fans existed. It's I don't like, think you tried hard enough to let those trees grow. Or arguably, let's let's back up two steps, or let's cut down ask, some trees and plant these fans. <laughs> well, I just want to know. Like, so what are we doing so we can't grow trees? Like, what is like it's 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 for parts basically of 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 obviously of the, of the tar sands where we've basically desecrated the landscape so badly we can't grow trees, which you know what are actual things that suck up carbon, mm. you know, like these magical fans. It's the most human thing in the world to decide that instead of you know plant like what we have these natural things that suck carbon instead. What if we created fifty massive fans that did the exact same thing but less efficiently? Yeah, it's, it's like. The most thing, the most human. Um, so, 
those are two ways of trying to uh, two of the stories uh, of of future of future technologies that humans are trying to come up with. But both of them, I think, lead to the third story, mm. uh, which is Margaret Atwood's piece about the two possible futures. One is one is the future of of carbon of, of low carbon, and she goes through all of the different things that you could see. We, like we wear hemp, we buy local, uh, we grow our own food. Um, and all this other stuff. Like, I think at one point, I think in her, like, obviously she's a little fantastical. And I think at one point we're using sailing ships mm. uh, as a part of our ship search, uh, um as well. And then a new, no, un, un, uninvented flying, uh, I believe, was another part of it. Yeah. Um, but, like, that was sort of one option. The other option is what happens if we lose oil immediately? What happens if we just drop off a cliff? And that's often the questions I often asked. Is like, people go on and on about how, uh, about how we need oil right now and all this stuff. But, like, without an actual attempt to to transition a, a drop off the cliff approach is a much scarier second option so mm-hmm. she goes through what would happen if we just lost all oil tomorrow mm. um, and I think what's interesting about this is both these two technologies so the the idea of end of oil and instead of replacing oil with fans or other stuff like that none of it really addresses this transition we actually need to do Right, it's it, when we see the fans, and then we see this these plastic as as oil. Both are interesting and could perhaps be a part of the future, but neither of them, both of them, are just stalling tactics to some extent of actually making the transition that we actually require. Mm-hmm. Both of them are sort of sitting around being like, "Hey, this could be a thing, but it's not exactly." Uh, and it, 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 so I think if we look at all these, and this, the, the other two articles, I think are, are one is uh, 140 billion dollars are being given by U.S. companies, and the other article is uh, to to climate change initiatives, obviously, uh, and the other article is about how states are more likely to actually agree with green things, uh, which I think is sort of we see that final little push that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if all of these sort of things, uh, if, if all the articles leave me to one to leave lead me to believe one thing, it is that we need to start actually talking about investing in the transition rather than trying to find other weirder and weirder ways for the status quo to, pr- to preserve itself. Yeah. It's, it seems like at the very least, like even a lot of people on the, on the conservative side are now sort of accepting, well, there, there's the sort of lunatic fringe that still thinks that, you know, climate change is a hoax invented by Al Gore and, mm-hmm. and even they're losing the own argument because there's enough people on the conservative side that, that are sort of go, have got the message that that's a tinfoil hat position. Um, but now we're really just arguing about when that transition has to happen. Uh, and I call that a win. Uh, but we've been, uh, we flew through some news. All that will be on the website. You can look in more, but I wanted to give Sonny one more chance now. We've got about three minutes, so I'm sorry you don't have a ton of time. Um, but you, you had mentioned during the break there that you wanted to connect food to the climate change issue as well, and, and you've got about two minutes to do so. Sure. So food is very related to climate change. Climate change to me was a vague term until I went to Indonesia and I saw how it affects things. So Indonesia is one of the most sensitive countries to climate change because it has high biodiversity, it has high population density, and it's a collection of islands. A rise in sea levels can really cause a lot of flooding. And I met a strawberry farmer there who I became very close with. And he said that in the last two years, they've been having very erratic rainfall, which I saw while I was there, too. Um, The dry season and the wet seasons are mixed. And for strawberries, he needs the dry season in Indonesia. So... He can't grow strawberries anymore properly, and other crop farmers are also facing issues which lead to food security. And so how does this relate to factory farms? Because they produce copious emissions of greenhouse gases, of methane and carbon dioxide, which in turn lead to issues of food security and livelihoods and general earth preservation. Um, And that's in Project Animal Farm. 
All right, and again, we'll have uh, links to that uh, uh, on the uh, on the website as well, Project Animal Farm. And uh, if you're tuning in late, that was uh, Sonia Faruqi. Uh, so we interviewed about her book at the beginning of the show. So if you missed it, go to the website, greenmajority.ca, and learn more. Also today, we heard from Stephen Gray and Chris Phillips from Greening Homes. As I just said, all that will be on the website and more, as well as all the news links. But that is all the time we have for this week. You've been listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful community partners. We'll see everybody real soon and next week.